this episode because tongues and the interpretation of tongues is probably the most popular of the spiritual gifts. And there's so much confusion around it. So I wanted to make this episode to help offer some clarity to a lot of questions like what are tongues? What should the interpretation of tongues function like? What role do they play in the church? And more importantly, what does the Bible have to say about any of it? The fact is that no one can agree about tongues at all. Some people think it's a gift given to a few, while other people think it's a personal prayer language given to every Christian. Still others think that it's distributed only to a certain amount of Christians who are quote-unquote spirit-filled, and thereby it's used to distinguish as a marker to differentiate between the spirit-filled and the non-spirit-filled. In any case, there's much confusion around it, and the majority of the reason why is because the Bible actually says so little about it. And let's be honest, there's another reason why it's so popular, and yet such a confusing topic. It's because it's by far the easiest gift to fake. It's strangely convincing that so many people can speak in tongues, and yet no one can interpret tongues. Honestly, I know by name a number of atheists who can speak in tongues more convincingly than most Christians I've heard attempt speaking in tongues. And worse yet, since many of the charismatic section of Christianity tend to have the habit of equating things that happen spontaneously with things that the Spirit is doing, when they are encouraged and encourage others to speak in tongues, that act itself being highly questionable, they often urge the person to speak aloud the first thing that comes to their mind, even if you don't understand it. The speaker then goes on to say many things which neither they nor anyone present could understand. And because spirits are high and emotions are high, the entire group leaves convinced that the person has indeed spoken in tongues, or perhaps even become spirit-filled. Now, what I just described is actually the experience of many people. And while I have my own doubts about such experiences, my goal here isn't to step on anyone's previous experience. Rather, my goal is to demonstrate how far removed this type of thinking is about tongues from what the New Testament actually says about it. So what are the origin of tongues? Well, a definition might help. First, a tongue is simply a metaphor denoting a language spoken. Thus, if I speak in a tongue, I speak in a language. In light of this fact, I can't speak of the origin of tongues in the Bible without briefly referencing the famously known Tower of Babel story. To give a brief recap, Genesis 11 records a story wherein the people of all nations were gathered together, unified in a purpose to build a tower in rebellion against the heavens. Most importantly, they all spoke the same language and understood each other. But this soon changed as the story tells God came down to frustrate their plans by confusing the languages so that no one could understand each other. As such, the people became dispersed throughout the whole known world of that time. Notice this brief story is a counter-parallel to what you see happening in Acts 2. In Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, there are people not dispersing but gathering together from various nations and tongues, and gathering together not for rebellion but for the purpose of worship. And when God comes down, he doesn't confuse languages. Rather, it's said that although the people were from various languages and cultures, Nevertheless, each person understood the words that the disciples spoke in their own language. Now, Paul picks up on this point in 1 Corinthians 14, wherein he discusses the topic of tongues at length, probably the most lengthiest passage and setting that we have about tongues in the Bible. And he also seems to have this counter-Tower of Babel narrative in the back of his mind also. 
Only he views the church as the alternative type of tower, namely a temple that God has come down upon, not to bring confusion, but to, as he repeatedly says throughout the chapter, to build up for the purpose of unified worship together. Along these lines, he commands that Christians build one another up by speaking words that are intelligible, the argument being that if you don't use words that are intelligible, you can't build anyone up. In fact, he says in verse 19 that within the context of the assembly of believers, he would rather speak five intelligible words than 10,000 words in a tongue. He then goes on to quote a passage from the Old Testament, which is a bit of a detour, but it's well worth the time examining since it gives insight into what Paul's thinking is and for the purpose of what tongues are actually used for. Not only that, it enlightens us as to how tongues were being misused in that day and they're still being misused today. He says, Brothers, don't be children in your thinking. Be little babies when it comes to evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it says, By a people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. That's verses 20 and 21. This seemingly random quotation which Paul says is from the law, a broader term that the New Testament writers often use for when referring to the entire Old Testament, is actually from Isaiah 28. And here, like elsewhere, the context is all too important. In this context, God is, through Isaiah, pronouncing judgment upon those who lead and teach the people. Because rather than giving the people proper instruction of what God requires, they are actually getting drunk and uttering nonsense. In verse 1, for instance, Isaiah mocks them in a pretty elaborate and poetic way, saying, Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim, and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. He goes on in verse 7 and 8 to say, These also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priests and the prophets reel with strong drink. They are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink and they reel in vision and they stumble in giving judgment. For all of their tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. Ugh. Honestly, this is a pretty disgusting image. But the picture is crystal clear. The leaders of Israel are given over to alcohol and to alcoholism. And their lack of self-control is prohibiting them from giving or understanding judgment or from receiving any clear vision from God. The next verse says, To whom will God teach knowledge, and to whom will he explain the message? What, to those who are weaned from the milk, from those who are taken from the breast? Isaiah is saying, Your drunkenness is causing you to behave and to talk like little babies. Now, as cute as newborn babies are, they can't formulate a single sentence. And with all due respect to them, this is simply because they lack the intelligence to formulate coherent words. As such, they babble on incoherently like gaga, goo goo, and such and such. This is what the leaders of Israel are being equated to. Now the next few verses are where the direct quotation in 1 Corinthians 14 comes from. Isaiah says, For it's precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. For by a people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue the Lord will speak to this people, to whom he has said, This is rest, give rest to the weary and this is repose, yet they would not hear. And therefore the word of the Lord will be to them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, in order that they may go backward and fall and be broken and snared and taken. So what's going on with this passage? 
Well, ironic that we were talking about language because this is one of those places where it's hugely helpful to know a little bit about the original language because it actually illuminates a lot of what seems to be really confusing in English. So the text in Hebrew reads, Asav, 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 Akav, 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 Za'er, Sham, Za'er, Sham. The problem is that none of these are actual Hebrew words. They only look similar to Hebrew words. So the word Sav looks similar to the word command. The word kav looks similar to the word for measuring line or line. And za'ir means a little bit and sham means there. So they're trying to say something roughly like command for command, command for command, measuring line for measuring line, measuring line for measuring line. A little bit here, a little bit there. That's about the best English translation anyone can come up with. But when you look at it, considering that none of these are actual Hebrew words, what it really sounds like is babbling or mumbling at best. Now, remember the context. Isaiah just accused them of being alcoholics who speak like babies and fail to give proper instruction. So this is most likely Isaiah continuing to mock them, saying this babbling nonsense is what you sound like when you're trying to teach. Not only that, but he goes on to pronounce God's double judgment against them, saying two things. First, he says that for this reason, by people of foreign lips and by a strange tongue, the Lord will speak to this people, because although God has shown you the way of rest and commanded you to give rest to the weary, you've refused to listen. In other words, God's first response to the people who continue to babble and fail to give proper instruction and correction is to send them into exile by giving them over to be ruled by a foreign people, in this case, Assyria, who babble on in a foreign language, which they can't understand. God's second response is to announce to them that the word of the Lord itself will become to them asav, asav, akav, akav, ze'ersham, ze'ersham, the same non-coherent words that they themselves were using to instruct the people. Or another way to say it is, God is saying to them that because you've taught the people in ignorance using words that cannot be understood, therefore you yourselves will be kept in ignorance and hindered from understanding the words of God. This type of reverse judgment is what is often found in the prophetic writings, that is, prophetic justice in which God turns the wrongdoing of people back on their own heads, dishing out to them their own medicine, so to speak. In any case, that's the context in which Isaiah wrote the words of his day. And although it's a very different type of conversation in 1 Corinthians 14, that's what comes to Paul's mind when he's instructing the church about speaking in tongues. In this chapter, Paul's talking about how Christians are misusing the experience of praying in an unknown language within the context of worship gatherings. And the whole point is that people were having these highly charged spiritual experiences within the large gathering of the Corinthian churches, and it was becoming a huge distraction. It wasn't helpful to anyone who was gathering there, and because you couldn't understand what people were saying, and the purpose of gathering itself is to encourage each other and to build each other up, precisely by understanding what the other person is saying, nothing was profitable. And so starting in verse 13, Paul says, For this reason, the person who speaks in a tongue should pray that they would be able to interpret what they say. Because if I pray in a tongue, my spirit is praying, but my mind is unfruitful. My mind isn't filtering what I'm saying, in other words, and turning it into what, what I'm saying into something that another person can understand. So what should I do? Well, I should pray with my spirit, yes, but I should pray with my mind also. I should sing with my spirit, but I should sing with my mind also. 
If you're praising God with your spirit, how will someone who finds themselves among those who don't understand, how can they say amen to your thanksgiving when they can't even understand what you're saying? You may be giving thanks, yes, but the other person isn't being built up or encouraged because they can't understand what it is that you're saying. Then Paul actually says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. But nevertheless, in the gathering of believers, that is the assembly, I would rather speak five intelligible words so as to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Stop, he says, thinking like children. Think Isaiah 28. Stop thinking and babbling like children. In regards to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, grow up. In the law it's written, For by people of strange tongues and through the lips of foreigners I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. And then Paul concludes this, he says, Tongues then are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is for believers, not for unbelievers. So, if the whole church comes together and everyone's speaking in tongues, and some seekers or unbelievers come in, won't they say, these people are out of their mind? But if an unbeliever or a seeker comes in while someone is prophesying, speaking understandable language, they'll be convinced, they'll be convicted, they'll be called to account, the secrets of their heart will be laid bare, and they'll fall down and worship, saying, God is really among you. So this seems to be the idea that when tongues are spoken within the gathering of believers and there's no one to give meaning to what is said, speaking in tongues only has negative functions. This is why Paul says that tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers. In Isaiah's day, God's judgment upon the leaders was twofold, to send them foreigners who babbled in a language which they couldn't understand and to keep them from understanding and comprehending the words that God spoke to them by the prophets that he sent to them. Therefore, inarticulate speech which cannot be understood has only had the function of keeping people from believing throughout biblical history. It has never functioned to enable belief. So consequently, if an unbeliever enters a gathering of Christians who are all speaking in tongues, it won't enable belief, but rather it will cause him to conclude that they're all crazy. However, prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. Because if an unbeliever or an outsider comes into the assembly and all are speaking intelligible language which can be understood, making known God's words, revelation, this will function and has functioned throughout biblical history to enable belief rather than hinder it. Not only does speaking in tongues without an interpretation hinder belief, it hinders community and communion amongst believing Christians. The person next to you hearing you speak in tongues can't say amen to what you're saying because neither he nor you, the speaker, understand what is being said. As a result, rather than feeling welcomed, included, encouraged, built up, He's left in the position equal to that of an outsider, and such action is not building, it's actually destructive. This does, however, beg the question to be asked, if within the gathering of believers Christians are supposed to only speak in tongues if someone interprets, then what does the interpretation of tongues look like, and how should it function? Strangely enough, the topic of interpretation of tongues is an even messier topic than the topic of tongues all by itself. For now, however, I'll only say a few things about it. First and most simply, once again, tongues is only a synonym for language. So that speaking in a tongue and speaking in a language are synonymous for saying the same thing. 
So also the interpretation of tongues is synonymous for saying the interpretation of a particular language or languages. This point might seem self-evident, but strangely enough, it's not. There are many people who claim to quote-unquote interpret tongues, and yet what they call interpreting is a far cry from anything spoken about or envisioned by the New Testament accounts or authors. In fact, in many circles, it's often assumed that the way of interpreting a tongue is to articulate the emotional or spiritually charged mood of the room or the moment, and it's then assumed that whatever the feeling is at that moment, that must be what the spoken tongue is about. Now, while it's true that the Bible urges Christians to use discernment when seeking out and searching out the will of God, discernment is simply never a factor when it comes to interpreting anything. If I were bilingual in English and Spanish, and for some reason I wanted to explain to my friend who only speaks English what his Hispanic neighbor was saying because he couldn't understand her, well, in such a case, I wouldn't have to labor for a long time to try and explain to her the words that were unintelligible to my English-speaking friend. There would be no need to try to discern the emotional or spiritual state of the room or even what God wanted to do in that moment. The fact is that there were words spoken which I either clearly understood or I didn't understand at all. In the same way, when a person is truly speaking in a tongue or tongues, according to 1 Corinthians 14, 2, that person is speaking actual words, which, although unknown to him or anyone else, are words of gratitude to God. Therefore, the content of interpretation will always consist of some element of prayer or praise to God. In any case, there are no instances of this gift being utilized in the entire Bible outside of the Acts 2 passage wherein all the people who were gathered together from different nations in Jerusalem for the celebration of Pentecost heard Jesus' Galilean disciples praising God for his mighty works. Although the words were foreign and unknown to the speakers of the tongues themselves, according to the text, they were in fact speaking the various languages of the peoples represented there from various nations. Consequently, all the people understood the words that were being spoken in their own native tongues. See Acts 2, 5-11. While there was not any special gift of interpretation that rested upon the people hearing the speakers talk, as they were just understanding their native tongue that they already spoke, this example does nevertheless serve to show how the New Testament understands the interpretation of tongues to work. That is, simply to have a clear understanding of a tongue when it is being spoken. In the same way, possessing a gift of interpretation of tongues would simply be described as when someone is able to clearly understand a foreign language of a speaker that was previously not understood to him. Unfortunately, this isn't a gift that can be so easily faked, which is undoubtedly why it rarely ever happens. Now, you could do one of two things with all this information. You could use this bit of insight into how tongues and the interpretation of tongues ought to function according to the New Testament standard, and then go and set yourself up as the tongues police captain at your local church announcing to everyone who speaks in tongues without an interpretation that they're in the wrong. Or you could actually embrace the spirit and purpose as to why these commands were given in the first place and seek to implement them in light of the church culture in which you find yourself. This is what I mean. Take note of how far removed the 1 Corinthians 14 line of thinking is from what is seen in a great number of churches today. If you've been raised in church or have been a member of a church for any decent amount of time, you'll either have heard in your own church or heard about those within another church who speak in tongues freely during worship, when preaching, when praying, and so on, 
with there never being any type of interpretation of tongues being given or spoken, the fact is that for most Christians, even those who don't have a charismatic background, this sort of behavior is not offensive at all. In fact, if you took a poll, most Christians would not feel excluded or put off at all by hearing another Christian speak in tongues around them. The fact is that there are so many Christians who quote-unquote speak in tongues now that it's viewed by almost all of them as an extremely minor oversight at best to not have an interpretation when they speak or when someone else speaks. This isn't to say that their unbiblical behavior should be ignored or dismissed. It's to say that a good number of these churches aren't facing the same levels of disorder that Paul is dealing with within the Corinthian church. There are indeed a handful of churches where people ramble on in tongues for a long time, and Paul's words will be as strong for them now as it was for the church of Corinth back then. But for the majority of churches that allow the speaking of tongues in a public setting, it's more often than not very brief, it usually happens in passing, and more often than not, it doesn't disrupt the worship gathering. While the sting of Paul's words may not land with the same force upon these types of churches as it would upon those who rampantly misuse this gift, they still ought to question, in light of the text, the lack of profitability of speaking in tongues, however briefly, without there also being someone to interpret or provide understanding. It does, after all, remain true that such words spoken are simply not profitable or helpful to anyone listening, nor have they been throughout biblical history. It has the potential to deter unbelievers who are not acquainted with the normalities of Christian behavior, and it has no power to edify. Therefore, however normal this practice has become, the truth remains that it's unwise to practice it. Perhaps wisdom would dictate to those who have made this a norm to speak unintelligible tongues openly without an interpretation in this way, that they would begin to make speaking in tongues a matter of their own personal devotional lives of prayer and worship, so that they would also have the wisdom to say along with Paul that while I speak in tongues more than all of you, in the gathering of believers I would rather speak five words with my mind than ten thousand words in a tongue.